As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and our latest fresh batch of farm-to-table listener questions. Mm-mm. Today we're going deep on following Balogun, we're shortening the MLS Cup playoffs and we're finding out why Kylian Mbappe doesn't score lots more goals. My name's Ryan Bailey, joining me today to ponder those questions and much more, Graham Ruffin. Hello. Hello, Ryan Bailey. How are you this uh, fine afternoon? I, it, it dawned on me when you were introducing this the show there that following Balogun is a lot of R, L's and R's. And as I've said previously on this show, on this podcast, L's and R's together are very difficult for Scottish people to say. And it seems like everyone involved with the USMNT has lots of L's and R's, like Greg Burhalter. So please stop uh. producing players and managers who have lots of L's and R's in their names so I can pronounce it easier. Yeah, fo- follow follow in. I think that may be one of the first times I may have said it reasonably correctly, but thank you, Greg. Follow um, it goes just, by the name Flo as well, right? Ballo mostly maybe. to interject. Ballo. The ghost, okay, that's the easy, ghost that's of Joe Lowry interjecting before I've been introduced, but yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll introduce you soon, Joe. Uh, still talking to Graham. Um, red lorry, yellow lorry, red lorry, yellow lorry. Fast five times, please, Joe. Graham, go. Absolutely no chance. <laughs> Excellent stuff. All right, we'll get much more on Balogun, Flo, Ballo. It's a bit too Balotelli, isn't it? Ballo? Is that not, are we not evoking, well, while we're evoking uh, ghosts? There can be two. There's two Ronaldos, there can be two battles. That's true. Very well. Joe Lowry, your turn to be introduced. Hello, sir. Hey, it's my turn. Yay. Um, yeah, I, I agree. There can be two Ballos, especially because Balotelli is pretty irrelevant at this point. And I think that Balogun's probably hey, in a good spot to claim I saw it. he crashed his car last week. He knows how to stay relevant. Something's never changed, Graham. Something's never changed. <laughs> there we go. Oh, <laughs> wonderful stuff. Uh, no Taylor Rockwell with us today. Uh, still uh, expanding family. Uh, we wish the Rockwells all the best, of course, in that pursuit. Uh, a power trio, just like, uh, you know, uh, Joe, like like Rush or Cream or all those bands you listen to every day, right? Yeah, Rush and like Cream, that. my two favorite bands of all time, especially Rush Cream. cream. That's, Rush I was going to say that, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a good cocktail. Yeah. Like some cream, Graham, now and then? Mm. I like to think of us as a, as a thruple instead of a... Uh... Uh, our, our, what did you call us? A, a power, power trio, trio or something? Yeah, hmm. let's go with that's interesting. Power trio is cooler, right? Surely. 
Yeah, potentially. <laughs> depends oh, on your right. perspective. All right, enough flirting around. Let's get to the show, shall we? Before we do that, patreon.com slash show for our bonus content. If you'd like to support the show, that is the best way to do so. We've got bonus podcasts on there, videos, and, of course, access to our Discord. Um, you can't spell disco without Discord, Graham. That's a fact. No power trios in there. Yeah, I very much enjoyed the chat about you running onto the Wimbledon ploughlane pitch last uh, night, uh, shouting uh, the Lululemons, the Lululemons. <laughs> so this uh, something historic happened this week as we record. Um, AFC Wimbledon were on the ESPN Plus. They were broadcast live on the UK TV, and I think they just carried the feed over. It had Andy Townsend yeah. and the uh, ITV feed on it, which was tremendous because that team, Graham, is so rarely put on the television here. So it was a wonderful sight, and we won five 0 so that was helpful too. Yeah, every so often in the FA Cup and in, in the early rounds, they they uh, they take some Diddy teams and they put them on the TV. So there you go. That was the Diddy team for Monday night. P Diddy. Uh, sure, why not? I'm not sure what Diddy team just means. Like, is that a Scottish term? Like, a I think we're team? learning. I'm yes, about, it is a Scottish. Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about Ramsbottom yeah. or Ramsgate or whatever they were called. Ramsdale, Aaron Ramsdale. You were playing Aaron Ramsdale. Well done. You beat them five 0 Thank you. They're a PDD team now. Okay. Thank you very much for that clarification on the uh, the transatlantic divide between the languages and clearly the divide between England and Scotland as well. Let's go to the listener question, shall we? Trent McJivers has been in touch. It's a big one here, Joe. Why doesn't Kylian Mbappe score 50 goals per season in League R? So Mbappe with 34 goals last season, 35 the season before that. Is, it's a, is it not a reasonable question, Joe? Why couldn't he get, say, 40? Well, sounds like he's been pretty close to 40. I, my, my overall answer to this question <laughs> is that like no one scores 50 goals in a league season, right? Erling Holland last year scored 36 goals in the Premier League, and that was the Premier League record. Now, I know that Ligue 1 is more lopsided than the Premier League, or at least it certainly seems that way, right? PSG have more easy games where he should conceivably rack up more goals than someone like Erling Holland with Manchester City. That being said, Erling Holland is a freak and is the best goal scorer on the planet right now. And the other thing is, is what I said, like no one scores 50 goals in a league season. Messi did it back in 2011 and 2012 for Barcelona in well, La Liga. Someone. He's good. He's someone. He's still doing his thing. Holland set the Premier League record last year, as I mentioned, 36. Messi has the La Liga record, easy for me to say, with 50. The Bundesliga record is 41 with Robert Lewandowski. That was back in the 2020-2021 season. And then Gonzalo Higuain uh, tied the record back in 2015-16 in Serie A with 36 goals. So the, the real reason is that it just it just doesn't happen. Scoring goals is really, really hard. Even the best players and the best goal scorers of generations don't get past that 50 mark, right? Messi and Ronaldo were scoring like 400 goals for club and country over the span of a year, but we're just talking about a league season, right? 36, 38, 39, whatever, whatever the number of games is, right? Depending on the league, scoring that many goals is really difficult. A couple of other reasons besides like it just doesn't happen and mechanically with a low scoring sport in a game, in, in a season where there aren't you know, a bajillion games in a league campaign at the very least, a couple of other reasons why I think this is something that Mbappe is probably not going to do, get to 50 goals, is he's not a ball-dominant player, right? You think about killing Mbappe, he likes to be on the ball, but it's not like he's racking up extra goals like Messi did back in, in 2012 by getting on the ball and taking over games himself. Yes, he can do that stuff, but Mbappe is at his best when he's going vertical to goal, right? He's at his best when he is driving the ball forward or moving off the ball to receive in behind. And he, he's just not the guy who's on the ball a thousand times a game, working all the magic in every part of the field. So I think that's a secondary reason to the fact that mechanically, soccer is a pretty darn hard game to score 50 goals in 30 some odd games. 
Uh, Graham, not satisfied with that answer. If Lewandowski can do 41, can Mbappe not, not do 41 I, in I just said Mbappe is close to 40, right? He is. He has been close to 40. I think it's totally possible that he gets to around 40. But doing 50, like the fact that Messi is the yeah. only one who's done it in a long, long, yeah, yeah. long, long, long time. And Messi is the greatest player in this sport. And he's the greatest player this sport maybe will ever see. Like that's that's not the standard. Yeah, I very much agree with Joe. It reminds me of the discussion we had about Neymar a couple of weeks ago and the expectation that was placed on him. And Messi and Ronaldo, they they just warped expectations for the next generation. So Messi scored, as Joe kind of references, 50 goals in a league season once. So Messi's only ever done it once. The greatest player of all time did it once in the 2011-2012 season. And Ronaldo came pretty damn close in uh, 2014-15 when he scored 48. That's the only time I could find the 50-goal mark being reached in a top-five league ever. I'm pretty sure no other player has done it. So I just think 50 goals in a season. And Trent in his question talks about in the French league. So I I took goals only being in Ligue 1 rather yeah. than all competitions. Yeah. Um, I just think that is going to be almost impossible. And I accept Ligue 1 isn't the Premier League, but Barcelona and Real Madrid had as big an advantage over the rest of La Liga at that time as PSG have now. And I just think it's just a bit much to place on a player. And actually, if I went back through the last five seasons... Um, so very quickly, some numbers here. Last season, Mbappe got 29 goals in 34 league games. The season before that, 28 and 35. Season before that, 27 and 31. Um, then he had some injuries in 1920, but um, still managed to score 18 goals in 21 games. And then it's 33 goals in 29 games before that. And as far as I can see, that gives him the highest scoring rate of any player in Europe's big five leagues over that same time frame. Because Haaland's is higher over the last three seasons, but he doesn't have five seasons of, of this kind of, of, of scoring at that sort of level in a big five league. And then Messi and Ronaldo have dropped off in this time frame. And, and Kane has a lower scoring rate over five seasons. Um, still very high, but not as high as Kylian Mbappe. So we are still talking about the most reliable goal scorer in domestic league football over the last five seasons. But Graham, I want more. I want more goals. I suppose so, yeah, the point here that Trent is making is that is there dispensation for the fact that he's doing it in Ligue 1 rather than I mean, obviously uh, Messi's doing it in a t- in a in a league where there was a duopoly. This one has a bit of a monopoly. Yeah, but well, he's still outscoring everyone else, though, right? So that is the dispensation, okay. as he is outscoring Kane and Haaland and Messi and Ronaldo in Ligue 1. I think the other thing is uh, that Mbappe has played in a pretty dysfunctional PSG team for the last few seasons. And while he's good enough to keep scoring, clearly, that has to have had some sort of impact on his output. He's not playing in a team that necessarily... Certainly right now under Luis Enrique plays to his strengths. I would say you want to get Kylian Mbappe in a quick transition, maybe even a counter-attacking team. That's why he's done well, so well for France under Deschamps. And PSG maybe have been that team in recent seasons, but right now I wouldn't say they're that team. So there, there are some mitigations on Kylian Mbappe. Um, but as I say, he's still outscoring everyone else. What do people want? He's scoring more goals than any other player in world football. And it's still not enough, apparently. Yeah, people want more, I suppose. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for tackling that one. Uh, Trent McJivers with the question there. I was worried for a second that was a rude fake name. I have been caught out like that in the past before. But Google (laughs) tells me Trent McJivers was a character played by Ben Stiller in a Backstreet Boys parody. So there you go. Okay, cool. Why did you not get that? I thought that was obvious. I did get it. I Googled it. Graham and I have been talking about this (laughs) for months leading up to this question, Ryan. You were late to the party. (laughs) Thank you very much, Trent. Uh, Joshua Cutlip comes in now. Could MLS play their playoff games with a quicker turnaround? Maybe one or two rest days between games. Uh, Interesting concept, Graham, to shorten 
the MLS playoff uh, process. Current in the current season, it started October twenty fifth. Obviously, MLS Cup final is coming up as we record uh, this weekend on December 9th. You could play like a World Cup or a major tournament in that space of time. Yeah. In a World Cup, you do have teams playing every three to four days or so. Is it feasible? Could we condense this down and? Could that help with the momentum, with the interest in the league, if things were a bit more truncated? So I wrote a piece for The Guardian last month, and it had a slightly mischievous headline that I think people uh, misinterpreted, not to throw my sub-editor under the bus or anything, but the writers don't tend to write the headlines. Um, but this was my primary complaint about the playoff format. Well, I had, I had two complaints, actually. I don't necessarily dislike the best of three first round. I still think it's kind of weird, and I haven't fully got my head around it, but I don't have a strong opinion one way or another on whether it's better or worse. I think there are some good things about it and I think there are some bad things about it. But I didn't like the whiplash of going from the um, the wild card round, which is like single game elimination, then into best of three and then back to single game for the conference semifinals and then the final yeah. and then MLS Cup. I don't like that lack of consistency. I can't really think of another like knockout tournament that does something like that it just very much felt like mls was bulking out but bulking bulking up the number of games for apple tv which i think is actually what happened here my other complaint which relates to joshua's question is how fragmented the playoffs are with uh international break right in the middle of them and just how long a period there are there is between games i think you could absolutely tighten that up you could cut an entire week out of the schedule by having the first round uh, the first round one match on a Saturday, followed by a Tuesday or a Wednesday second match, and then a, a third match if it gets that far the following weekend. And as far as I could see, and I could remember, um, so the LA Galaxy played the Vancouver Whitecaps one weekend, then it was another week till the next game, and then another week until uh, until game three after that, I think it was. There was a week in between each of those matches in the first round this year, and that just feels like too much to, to, to my mind also if only there was a mid-season tournament that doesn't really mean anything that takes up a whole month and could be get, get got rid of to shorten the season and avoid the november international break that would be really really convenient yeah. if mls could find something like that yeah the the league's cup tournament was awesome from an entertainment perspective like that's some of the best soccer we've gotten all year the challenge is that the schedule is so bloated it's really really difficult to turn the playoffs which should be the biggest thing into something that consistently captures attention. So, Graham, I, I take your point on that. Uh, to get to the meat of Joshua's question, it's not, I, sh I shouldn't say it's impossible. I think it would be ill-advised to play games with this quick of a turnaround, right? A day or even two days is really, really fast for the body to regenerate. Two, two, days, is too, two days is too quick, it's but too three quick. or four is quite yes, common agreed, in soccer. Agreed, that's not, a, that's not a problem at all. But I, I just wanted to address that specific comment from Joshua. I, I, there's a reason why we don't see that happen around the world. Players need time to rest and recover, and you can't really do that properly in a physiological way that quickly at a high level. So that's, Also, uh, Joe, we have to build in travel in MLS where you're going coast to coast with one like or two six days. Six hours of this process. Well, eight hours of this process is you leaving your home to getting to a new city off of an airplane and yeah. then going to the hotel. Yeah, good point, Ryan. So that that's not super feasible. But I do think there, there needs to be, if not tight or turnaround, and I think that is part of it, like more consistency in the format. If MLS decides to, and I'm not, even, I'm not even talking year to year, right? Which would be a big help as well. If MLS could just stop tinkering and pick something that's good. But even just within teams knowing what days are going to play and fans knowing what days are going to play. I, I've been talking to some sort of casual MLS fans and they like had no clue what games are on when. Like that's a problem. Fans need to know Fans of their own teams need to know when games are happening. And, and the neutral MLS fan, which MLS needs way, 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 way more of, like needs to know when the playoff games are going to be. This year, 
The Philadelphia Union and the New England Revolution played their first game of their round one series on October 18th. They didn't play again until November 8th. Like there was no, it seemingly no rhyme or reason to some of the scheduling stuff along this process for Major League Soccer. It was really, really difficult to follow. I, you just need to set cadence, right? Do Wednesday, Saturday. Do Wednesday, Saturday and Thursday, Sunday. Like do something that's set and trackable and then eventually maybe you tighten down some of the wait times because you're not having those massive weird random gaps. And you're also helping your fans know like literally when their team is going to play. Oh, oh, we agreed that the playoff system right now is too long, Joe. Month, nearly a month and a half to get this whole thing done, right? That's that's too much. Yeah, it, it, it does certainly seem to be too much at the moment. Like it's a really long process and all of this stuff. Also, excuse me, I was wrong on the union date. It was October 28th to November 8th. Still really long, but I read that. I was like, that is like three weeks. That makes no sense. But I think my point absolutely still stands. So anyway, setting that aside, I just had to cover my own butt there. Yeah, it, it's too long, right? And the international break timing for MLS is going to be a problem no matter what, right? If you try to get the playoffs in before the November international break or before that, you know, that last international break, then you've got a giant off season. And that's a really awkward thing. And if you don't, then you've got this massive gap in the middle of your postseason and you lose momentum. So I do, in some ways, MLS shoots themselves in the foot in a lot of ways, it seems to me. This is an area where I do legitimately feel for them. I know this is when people will say, we'll change the calendar, and I'm, I'm not opposed to that necessarily, but there are obvious logistical challenges there that make that a difficult decision. So, yeah, there's not really, in my mind, an obvious way to do it, or we would have already seen it by now. Last season's playoffs, I thought, were fantastic. And when I think back to why that was, when I went and looked at the fixtures, I think it was more condensed because of the of the World Cup, yep, of having to get the season finished by like mid-November. And so the matches seemed to roll from one into the other. There wasn't the best of three series, which obviously helped quicken things up a little bit. And um, yeah, I seem to remember last season's playoffs being among the best in memory in MLS. So it turns out mid-season World Cups might be bad in general, but they're uh, potentially good for MLS playoff yeah, formats. Yeah, th the problem is... It I don't disagree, Graham. I think from an entertainment perspective, it was really strong. It just was also really short, right? Like you're running from October 15th to November 5th. That's not nothing, but it's also not a long time. It's like three weeks, just under three weeks. And then all of a sudden you have to wait for the next season to start. And that's not kicking off until March, right? It's just a really difficult situation. I guess the end of February, right? It's a long time to have this break and you rush through what, what truly is, even though I think the regular season should be more important, you rush through what is like the most impactful, meaningful, fun part of the season. I, I don't know that it's as simple as like just get it all ripped out of the way really, really quickly, even though obviously that does help when it comes to the international break stuff. Uh, Joe, I think I've just discovered the solution. Okay. You can thank me Bring later. Uh, thank if you. we If we are worried that the off-season is too short, and if we're worried about butting up into that November international break, uh, a two-month-long Leagues Cup. Uh, which then pushes things over. Uh, <laughs> you, you still get your... Yeah, there you go. There you go. The and then eventually, is... we keep making Leagues Cup bigger and bigger until we just have Leagues Cup. Yeah, money, please. Nailed it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, uh, if it makes the playoffs better, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I could be sold on that if it does make... Uh, the, the international break being in the middle of the playoffs, I cannot stress how much I dislike yeah, that. It totally fragments the playoff uh, momentum completely. So... Yeah, if, if an extra month of League's, League's Cup, if it gets us a better playoff format, yeah. I think, I think the key for MLS is to ally themselves with the process of global warming, wait for the North to heat up, then you can shift your schedule, and all of a sudden, bing, bang, boom, international break, not butting up against your playoffs because you started in January. I think we solved this.
Yeah, uh, MLS GMs having like tire fires outside stadiums <laughs> to speed that up along. Yeah, thanks, Al Gore, helping MLS get its uh, playoff system sorted out. Um, Graham, at the start of that question, you mentioned uh, writing uh, an article for The Guardian. About oh, Graham writes for The Guardian? That's crazy. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Um, <laughs> to, just uh, just so you could show how the sausage is made, uh, if, if listeners are interested, you mentioned about not writing the headline. Is that typical? You don't write the headline or the subheadline when you submit something? Yeah, absolutely typical. There's like there's a couple uh, places where I I do pick the headline, um, Forbes being one of them. But yeah, typically it's a sub editor. I always who I presume just asks uh, ChatGPT. I presume that's yeah. the whole process that goes right. on. There. Well, if you're writing for SI, that that's absolutely the case. Yeah, Grim, that always because <laughs> I I have had that same experience too, right? It's it's I've only written for one place that you pick your own headline, and then obviously for Backheel, I'm I'm the one running running that chip. But, you know, if I'm writing for someone else, and that always really irks me. It's like I've already written the article. Now I have to now I gotta do the headline, too. And that always is the hardest part for me is, like, figuring out what, what something catchy is going to be. So I, I appreciate, for the most part, that, that people do that for, uh, for those of yeah. us on the freelance side. I, I, and obviously, I've done that for many years as well. I always, always submit a headline because I feel like I'm the best person, best positioned person to do it. Um, it's, it's like if I made an album and then the record company went, thank you, we'll give that a name. That's ours now. Uh, yep, we'll, we'll take care of that. It's. it's quite I mean, that a... happens quite often, doesn't it? Is that not part of the? How does process? Cream name like... their albums? Is the real question. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Disraeli Gears one was called. That's quite a handle hmm. for an album. Hmm. You, you knew that joke, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break. <laughs> Enough of that. When we come back, we're talking uh, Flo Bello. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Kenny Sides, everybody. Kenny Sides has been in touch and asks, what has Fuller and Balogun... Fullerin Balogun, I've messed it up. What has Fullerin Balogun <laughs> done so well, done well so far at Monaco, and what does he need to improve on? Are there any areas of his game that you've seen grow in this season so far at Monaco? Joseph, uh, four goals and an assist in Liga this season. If uh, the stats serve me well, he is not Monaco's top scorer at the moment. That's Wilson Benyeda with six goals, but he's played a couple more games. What are we making so far of Balo Dons La Monaco? All right, so to start with things he's done well, Balogun has been really sharp slipping in behind the back line. He scored a goal like that against PSG. It's a big moment for him. Uh, got him behind really nice in a in, uh, recent game against Montpellier. He, his movement off the ball is really, really good. That has pretty much always been the best part of his game, and it's what has separated him from the rest of the pack at the USMNT level as well, along with some of his skill on the ball. So he's doing well to find space off the ball, and he's clever with his touches, right? He has good ideas. He has the ability to set up teammates for chances as well. He can do a lot of good in that area. As far as what's already improved for Monaco, 
I'll, I'll be honest, I don't really see a lot of improvement at this point in the season. What I do see is a lot of adjustment. And, it, and frankly, it's been a slower adjustment and a slower start to life with Monaco than I would have guessed for Florin Balogun. He's still been productive, Ryan. You mentioned that. Four goals in 650 league minutes in Liga. That's like a very, very respectable tally. If you add if you add that and sort of push it out to the rest of the year, that's a that's a very strong season. But I think we're waiting with Balogun for him to take the next step. He moved up to the next step in, in terms of like a rung up the ladder in Liga with a club move going to Monaco in the summer. He's sort of establishing himself still on the international level. But I think we're all, especially U.S. fans and the coaching staff and Monaco's coaching staff, are waiting for him to find that next gear. And frankly, that hasn't happened yet. The, the biggest things that I think are room for growth in Balogun's game, things that I think if the year goes well, we will see improve by the time the end of the year is up. The biggest thing is what happens when he's up against a big physical center back. He really struggles and continues to struggle with aerial duels. He's only in the 10th percentile among Liga forwards in aerial duel win percentage. So he's really inefficient when the ball is coming his way in the air. He struggles to actually get up and win the ball. So that's, that's part of this. He also ends up losing the ball on the ground if there's someone physical hounding him from behind. And this is borne out in the tape. This has happened a bunch of times this season. And it's borne out in the numbers because it's happening on the field, right? He's in the second percentile in miscontrols per 90 minutes, which is the bad end of that particular spectrum. So he's getting he's getting dispossessed and he's losing the ball a lot, way more than either he or Monaco would like. He's learning and adjusting and is in the process of going from being a part of a very dangerous and a very dangerous forward at the tip of a counterattacking team, which is where he was last year to now becoming a functioning and efficient part of a possession-dominant team like Monaco is. So his touches and his types of touches are different, right? He's facing forward less. He's having space to run into less. His impact on the game is different. He's not, you know, his shots are different. He's not getting, you know, easy counterattacking opportunities at this point. His shot quality is decreased because Monaco play teams at bunker, right? They have to go and break somebody down, and you get fewer clear-cut chances in that system. Balogun's still getting looks. He's still scoring goals. There's reasons to be excited about his potential to grow, but he is really, I think, feeling the effects of how different these systems are that he's now played in over in France. And I think it's going to take him some time, frankly, to become comfortable and more physical and to become a more impactful player in the attack at the tip of Monaco's shape. Very nice. Graham, anything to add there? My thoughts kind of directly align with what uh, Joe's already said, so I'll try not to echo his comments too much but I went and looked at some of his underlying stats from this season and I don't want it to get twisted he's he's made a decent start yeah. to life at Monaco so don't read this as he's had a bad start but his underlying stats there, ha there has been a drop off the number of shots he's having per 90 minutes has dropped from last season so that's the first thing to mention he's down from 3.6 shots per 90 to 2.75 this season and those shots are also poorer quality his xg per shot last season was 0.19 and this season it's uh, 0.12. Joe's kind of already mentioned this, so I'll be, I'll, I'll be quick. He's, go, he's coming from Rem, who were a very very much a counter-attacking team last season. Um, they, I looked at some of their numbers as well. They were mid-table last season in Ligue 1 for possession share per 90, and they were in the top four in Ligue 1 for counter-attack chances created over the season. Monaco is a team they like to have more control in games. They're third for possession share per 90 this season. They have scored two counter-attack goals this season, but that pales in comparison to the number of open open play goals and set piece goals they've scored so that's not me saying that Balogun is a bad fit for Monaco they just have more they just have more going on uh, Monaco unlike Rem who very much it felt like they played to Balogun's strengths because he was their best player so I think if we're talking about what he needs to improve on and I agree with Joe 
there hasn't really been much improvement this season because it's it's too early. He's only started eight games. I think that's a small sample size to see any improvement. But if we're talking about what he needs to improve on, I think he needs to take up better positions in open play. And that includes a better under, understanding of how to operate in, in tight spaces. Because if he is going to be one of the best strikers in the world he's going to have to play against low defensive blocks because he'll be on a, on a ball-dominant team. And along similar lines, I think his possession play as a focal point could be a little bit sharper. So until now, he's been a get-in-behind sort of centre-forward. But the absolute best in his position are also facilitators. And he's not completely useless in that regard because we have seen some good link-up play between him and Giorena for the US in particular. But if we're looking at a larger sample size, certainly for Monaco, I think he could be a little bit sharper as that kind of general focal point yeah. in attack. Yeah, Balogun touches when he has time and space and his ideas are good, right? Graham, that kind of gets to what you're talking about. If Balogun's dropping off the line, getting in midfield and, and linking up with someone like Gio Reyna, he's really effective and dangerous in those moments. He's very capable facilitating some play in that way, even turning forward and, and playing a ball in behind. He can do all that stuff. It just changes when he's under pressure, right? So that is absolutely one thing that needs to improve in his game. And, and the other thing, just to bring it all home, right? Talking about the transition from last year to this year, Balogun's skill set, where his number one skill is timing of his movement, his speed to get him behind, that makes him an elite counter-attacking forward, right? In games where Monaco can play against the ball, like they did against PSG, he will find chances in behind. He has done it, did it all year last year, scored 23 goals in Liga, 21 goals, excuse me, in Liga last year, and had a bunch of really strong underlying numbers. You take him out of that system and put him in a different system, where the requirements are different, the looks are different, all that stuff has changed, and he is not yet shown to be an elite player in a possession team. Granted, he's played 665 minutes in league on this year, so sample size is still small. But I, I love this question. I absolutely love this question from Kenneth because it actually gets to like what tangibly does he need to improve? Still young, there's clearly still things that need to change in his game, and I think this gives us a lot of really good context to come back to later in the year. Joe, a general question about Balogun. Do we still believe he is living up to the hype that he had when he came onto the scene? The fact that we're having this conversation, does it mean anything? Uh, is is he living up to the promise, I suppose? Yeah, it, based off of what I expected from him this season, no, right? But I think I had a little higher expectations than most people. And Ricardo Pepe's continued goal scoring for the national team kind of has, has lightly dampened things as well. But I don't think it's really a case of him massively underperforming yet. I think it's still so early. There's a lot of context and a level change in this club move. And again, like 600 minutes and change into a new season, into a new team at 22 years old. And he's got a handful of U.S. caps. So I think any reasonable person would probably say it's a little too early to, to go down that route. But Ryan, I think there is something to that, right? Like he has not performed in the way that I thought he would for Monaco this season. So it's, it's something worth watching. It is indeed. Kenneth Seiden, thank you very much for that question. Uh, ben Sundstrom has also been in touch uh, with another player-based question. What's happened to Callum Hudson-Odoi? He went from England's next big thing to anonymous in one and a half seasons. Uh, Graham, what do we make of uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi's journey? Obviously Forest at the moment and uh, not starting perhaps as much as he would hope, not getting, getting the minutes. And uh, I'm not sure about anonymous, but maybe not... Uh, as in the spotlight as he could have been. I think he's not too far removed from Anonymous, to be honest. I watched mm. Forrest play Everton at the weekend. He comes on in the second half off the bench, and it's kind of funny that we're getting this question this week because I thought to myself, 
I'm not entirely sure I knew that Callum Hudson-Odoi was at Nottingham Forest. <laughs> they do sign a lot of players, in fairness. But uh, yeah, he hasn't been a key player for Nottingham Forest this season. He's a, he's a bit of a depth option for them. I think two things were, to address the question, I think two things were a real issue for Hudson-Odoi. One was um, a fairly obvious one, the number of injuries he suffered, just as it looked like he might get a run in the Chelsea team. In particular, an Achilles injury in April 2019 really derailed him. He, he was a first-team player for Chelsea at that time. It had been a break through season for him and then he got a pretty bad injury and he was out for a while and he kept on aggravating the injury when he came back he was out again for a couple more weeks and that continued for basically the best part of two seasons and by the time he does come back to full fitness Chelsea have changed quite a bit as a team Thomas Tuchel comes in and plays with wing backs which means there's there's no straight winger position in the, in the team that suits Hudson Adoy and he had to, he had to adapt his game and I don't think he he really did that um, to be honest so injuries Changing circumstances at Chelsea, which didn't benefit him. And then there's the big sliding doors moment in his career, the, the Bayern Munich interest in January 2019. They bid £40 million for him. Chelsea rejected that offer. They kind of hummed and hawed on that offer for, for a while because at that time he's a, he's a young prospect and £40 million is, a lot, is a, lot of, a lot of money for a player who wasn't a key figure at that time. Bayern Munich, they were moving on from the kind of Robin and Ribery era. And Hudson-Odoi was the winger that they wanted. Um, Chelsea refused to sell him. Hudson-Odoi signed a new five-year contract. Bayern Munich went and got Leroy Sané a, a, a couple years later um, for that position. And that's worked out pretty well for them. So Callum Hudson-Odoi must watch Leroy Sané, who's really exploded this season for Bayern Munich, and, and ponder what might have been, because that could have been him if his career had panned out a little bit differently. Okay, so is the TLDR bad timing and injury, effectively? Yeah, and, and changing circumstances that there's not much he could have done to with the Tuchel appointment. It's just mm. a manager who didn't really have a position for him in his team. And th- those were really key formative years for him at Chelsea where in his early 20s, he's he really needs regular game time and needs to establish himself. And, and I'm not really sure there was the opportunity for him to, to do that under Thomas Tuchel. So there's some bad luck in there and some, I wouldn't say bad career decisions because it was Chelsea. That rege- he didn't have the option to go to Bayern Munich. They, they rejected the offer for him, but there was some career sliding doors moment stuff going on there as well yeah fair enough joe anything to add on that one i think graham covered a lot of it really well the injury stuff i think legitimately took a step off of adoy's game right like the the acl is it the achilles injury some of the nerve issues i I think that legitimately impacted his ability as a quick incisive attacking player and you add that stuff to how ridiculous chelsea had been for years now and the fact that he played under a bunch of different managers and didn't have the stability there and all of a sudden you've got a player whose development was stunted and has completely changed the course of his career. So yeah, I'm, I'm with Graham on this. Good stuff. All right. Thank you very much, Ben, for that question. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking USMNT and we're talking about how we change the game because that's the power we yield. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Listen to Questions. Richard Rolson back in touch with us. Uh, Richard says, should there be a concern that the US men's national team has not looked as lively, energetic or confident since Greg Berhalter returned as coach? It's a small sample size, but the tactics under BJ Patches O'Hulan were relatively the same as under Berhalter, yet there seemed a positivity in the play that has not yet been evident under Berhalter since his return. Do you agree with this assessment or do you think there are other factors uh joe is it is a small sample size we're talking about here is it a is it a fair assessment do we think i i don't think so i'm curious to hear what graham has to say about this one if i had to guess richard and i do love this question if i had to guess i would imagine richard is thinking of the nation's league semifinal and the nation's league final against mexico and canada both wins for the united states back in june in las vegas i was there for those games there was incredible energy around those matches right the u.s really get up for the Nations League in particular, they really get up for games against Mexico, and that's a huge game for this group, this younger group who has truly embraced that rivalry. And they get up against Canada because they want to show that they're the top dogs in this region. If I had to guess, that's what Richard is referencing is the the really impressive games under BJ and the energetic ones, because a lot of the other games that BJ Callahan oversaw were not exactly the most fun. So he was in charge of the Gold Cup. And that was a 1-1 draw with Jamaica. It was a blowout win over St. Kitts and Nevis. It was a big win over Trinidad and Tobago. It was a 2-2 win in penalty kicks against Canada in the Gold Cup and a 1-1 loss in the Gold Cup to Panama. So 
There was a lot of really ugly, kind of irrelevant stuff along the way in there. But the first two games were were super fun for the United States, and that was Balogun's first camp to, to keep that thread going from the last segment. So lots of things to like about that, but I, I have a hard time chalking that up to BJ, right? Especially because we've seen the U.S. in the Nations League under Greg Baralter have a very, very similar energetic performance, if not an even more energetic one, back in the last version of the Nations League semifinal and final, and the U.S. go to extra time, and it's ridiculous penalty kick shenanigans against Mexico, and those games were wild, and they left everything on the field and lifted a trophy in the exact same competition against against similar opposition under Greg Baralter. So I, I have a hard time really chalking this up too much. That being said... Like I'm not, I'm not saying the U.S. have played especially well, right? They weren't very good in the in the first game against Trinidad and Tobago in the most recent set of matches, even though they turned it on towards the end and they had chances throughout the game. There was clear room for improvement. I take that to be more of a player issue than a coaching issue, but I know other people interpret it differently. And then you have the away loss to Trinidad and Tobago, which was not a good performance. The U.S. didn't play well to end the game, but they started well. When they had 11 players on the field, they were creating chances yeah. and running the show, and then Desco Supernova and punts the ball into the next town, and all of a sudden, the U.S. have lost <laughs> that game. So, I don't know. I, I really don't buy any of this, um, but I do think those Nations League games are fun, and the more often the U.S. can capture that energy and intensity, the better off they're going to be. Yeah, the problem I have with this question is that the sample size is so small. And I know Richard says that in his question, but still, there have been six matches in total since Berhalter came back in as as, as national uh, And four of them manager. were friendlies. Well, this is the point I'm going to get to. I, honest, I honestly think only one of those matches is fair to judge, and that is the home leg against Trinidad and Tobago. The second leg, as you mentioned, Joe, is completely nullified by the Des red card. I'm not sure how we can blame Berhalter for that one, that one of his players goes nuts. It's possible, Graham. Let's find a way. It's po- don't, don't challenge I'm, Twitter to that, Graham. It's possible. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, let's, I'm let's sure Twitter managed to do it. Yeah, but at that point, the game plan goes out the window, and it's just about survival and, and, and getting through that match. And then the other matches... Uzbekistan, Oman, Germany and Ghana are all friendlies, as you say, Joe. And I've yet to see an international friendly in my life that was played with energy. So I'm not I'm not really sure. I haven't really watched many of those games. I did watch the, the full 90 minutes of the 3-0 game against Trinidad and Tobago. And I can understand what Richard is saying about that game. It, it felt like the US was kind of playing within itself for a lot of, of, of that game. They still end up winning 3-0 in the end pretty comfortably. And if we look, if we are looking at the results, um, even from friendly games, they've won four, they've lost two. One of those games you can throw out the window because of the Des red card. The other one is a defeat to Germany, which, you know, is Germany. And the other four wins are an aggregate scoreline of 14-0. So it feels a little bit harsh. I know I'm kind of contradicting myself because I, I now am judging the friendly wins, but I just think friendlies really count for nothing in the grand scheme of things. They're runouts. They're 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 fitness exercises and maybe muscle memory exercises on shape and things like that. So yeah. Uh, I'm I'm not holding anything against Berhalter at this stage. No, I I'm not either and I want to be clear, right? I'm not saying the US has played especially well in these games. The Uzbekistan friendly was super meh getting a little bit more joy against Oman. I thought the first half against Germany was really, really strong from the U.S. in a lot of ways, at least in the attack. And then the game against Ghana was, I mean, the U.S. ran the show, right? They, they absolutely dominated Ghana in that first 45 minutes. So there have been good moments, but it's it's not like the U.S. has been comprehensively dominant or even even necessarily good. But they also weren't that under B.J. Callahan either, right? The, the big myth in soccer is that managers matter so much, right? That they're the, the people that have the, the absolute biggest part to play. And that's just objectively incorrect, right? It is much more important 
who's on the field and how they're performing. And the reality is the U.S. still don't have players who can go out there and dominate teams or even consistently dominate teams that are worse than them. They have the players to be in any game, regardless of who the coach is. And you want a good coach to set up a team well, to pick the right players. And there are certainly things to quibble about in this in this era with Greg Berhalter leading the charge. But, you know, it's not like there was this magic switch flipped where B.J. Callahan, Big East legend, comes in and says, all right, we're going to go out and, and dominate. And then he leaves and now is still on staff, by the way. But he doesn't, yeah, you know, he the doesn't maintain the role. Around. And Berhalter comes in and all of a sudden these players don't know how to play soccer anymore. Like, that's that's just not a thing. And that's not what Richard's saying, but, like, that's that's just not a thing. Yeah, I, I'm not concerned about Ber- Berhalter and I'm not concerned about any kind of drop-off in, in energy. One concern I do have, kind of related to this run of fixtures that the US has had this year, is more related to this World Cup cycle and how there are no qualifiers ahead of this 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 World Cup. And that is that is a concern for me because I think it's hard to replicate competitive environments in these games. And that that's why getting an invite to Copa America next summer and then qualifying for Copa America was so important because that is going to be a good preparation. I mean, it's a tournament in its own right that the US wants to do well in, but if everything is about 2026, a World Cup on home soil, that tournament's really, really important to preparing for that tournament. But still, I, I, I would guess this, if Richard is seeing a drop-off in energy and maybe a staleness in the performances, this is kind of how the majority of matches will be until the 2026 World Cup. Because as I say, replicating those competitive environments, it's just very, very difficult yeah. to do yeah. in soccer. I, Taylor and I have talked about this before. I'm curious to see what, if anything, US soccer does or, or can do to add more of those things, right? I don't know if there's some possibility for them to create an extra tournament out of thin air and work alongside FIFA to do that or to go and sort of shadow teams in World Cup qualifying and other confederations. But that's difficult because they're obviously not incentivized to burn their best players playing against you when they have legit qualifiers that matter. So it's it's a complicated situation. And of course, for U.S. soccer, it's, it's worth it, right? The trade-off is worth it to host a World Cup and to not go through that process because you're already in the World Cup that you're hosting. Obviously, that pays off. But Graham, to your point, manufacturing that kind of energy is really, really difficult outside of legitimate competitions that only have meaning because players and teams and you know countries give them meaning because of how they apply themselves and how they try. But it's difficult to manufacture that sort of overnight. All right, Joe, hear me out here. Uh, the two-month expanded Leagues Cup, we invite the USMNT to also play in it. <laughs> uh, we make the best of three in the playoffs, the best of five, and the US have to play in all of those as well. Discuss. I, I think I think we're getting games. I mean, what? I saw yeah. this the other day. Inter-Miami, I think, are playing El Salvador, like the El Salvador yeah. national team, in a preseason game next year, in I believe, in El Salvador, which really, maybe that's not right, but that's I believe that's what I saw. That's like a very strange decision to make like how what what are you getting out of that from a marketing perspective I don't know what what deal has been made there but we're getting some classic retro club versus country games maybe the U.S. Mm. should hop in on that action I think that's not a terrible idea Graham am I right in thinking Spain used to do that back in the day the league champions would play the national team on the offseason I'm sure that was a thing oh I'm not I'm not familiar with that I'm not saying it didn't happen but Mm. um I'm not. I remember, like Taylor tells the story of pre '94, the U.S. playing club teams, right? Mm. Yeah, right. All the all the U.S. players were sort of there, and they played like a bajillion games in that process. Absolutely. I like, I like the way you've addressed it. As Taylor tells the story, as if he's unfilled a parchment and sat down with his pipe and told in front of a fire. He's told it a few times. <laughs> he like he like he likes that story, and he's told it a, a, a few times on on the podcast. So I always remember it as, as yeah, Taylor sitting by the fire telling me the the story with his parchment. Wonderful times indeed. Richard, thank you very much for that question. One more question for this listener. Questions episode from Jake Schroeter, who says, as most of you are fathers, 
What changes to the game of soccer would you like to see that would make the game better for your children, who will hopefully be future soccer stars? A nice question for in Taylor's absence, because if he's uh, doubling father duties uh, as we speak. Um, Graham, I think the one thing, if I could change anything for the benefit of my two daughters right now, would be to make it cheaper. Not just to go, but also to play. I think it's a big thing in, in the US. Yeah. Uh, the pay-to-play system might make it much more accessible if I were uh, Lord of the Manor. And also just going to games. Um, in the market I'm in, in, in Charlotte, it's very expensive. I essentially can't afford to have three season tickets, maybe four season tickets to right. go week in, week out. It is prohibitively expensive. The match day experience when you get in concessions and everything else, it's too much. It's just too much. So that would be something I would really look to address yeah i'm not i'm not saying there are in um price pressures in the uk and in scotland i feel like that might be exacerbated further in the us i'm just thinking with sophie she does she does football lessons on a saturday they're free we don't pay for them um and to go to a sterling albion game and i accept sterling albion charlotte is different levels but it's free for her to go to a sterling albion game as well and the couple of times i've taken her she she doesn't pay for a ticket she's four years old i don't think she pays for a ticket until she is 12 i think as, as as far as that so i think similar with like scotland games obviously you need to book the ticket for scotland games but i think it's free up until the age of yeah. about 10 or something for scotland games if you're so- old enough to throw a brick then you have to pay right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's the Turkish rules. If you're yeah. old enough to throw a phone, a cell phone onto the pitch, you have to you have to pay. Um, so I accept that point, Ryan. Maybe I'll find that lessons, football lessons, are much more expensive when Sophie gets a little bit older. Of course, one of my children is actually doing pretty well in soccer already. Scott McTominay, he's he's having a good season for 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 club and, and country. Okay. Um, but for Sophie, I think she'll only ever be interested, properly interested in soccer if it's on Disney Plus and it's being played by characters from Frozen or Moana. So if a league could come up with that, I know the NFL did a Toy Story. She's really into Toy Story, actually. Um, I know the NFL did a Toy Story broadcast. If they could do like a Frozen broadcast of a Premier League game, then maybe um, she would she would be a future soccer star. There's got to be a technology where we're overlaying Disney characters onto current players to make our children more interested. That has to be a thing that we can already do, right? The future's here, surely. You would think so. Disney or Universal. I know that Universal have like a preseason tournament and Rangers have played in it a couple of times and like Rangers captain James Tavernier's pose next to like SpongeBob SquarePants is always a funny, a funny, uh, a funny photo call. So maybe it'll happen at the Universal uh, preseason tournament. Okay, Joe, anything else you'd like to change for the for the next generation? Yeah, as a father of many, many, uh, many people on the planet, <laughs> I have many uh-huh. thoughts on this topic. No, there are, I think, real improvements to be made in the United States in terms of accessibility, Ryan, you mentioned that. I think that's a very valid discussion point and it's not an easy one to solve, but it is It is there. I have the top of my list, get more people who love the game and are energized about it to coach. Like that to me feels like a major obstacle, the quality of youth coaching in my experience at very casual introductory levels in the US is bad. It's not, it's not good, it's not effective. They're not, these kids are not learning optimal ways to play the game and to to actually enjoy the game. That is the biggest thing for me. And a a lot of that, I think, can be influenced by the actual soccer that's played in this country. So along with this stuff, I'd say, get good coaches in MLS and in the NWSL and USL and play good soccer and have that influence the people that watch the game and then have kids and end up, you know, inevitably coaching their kids, right? There is a little bit of a trickle down there, but I think the biggest thing is, trying to find people, maybe maybe listener, maybe you know someone, maybe this is you, who could go out and, and coach grassroots soccer and try to help build it organically, build a positive culture, build you know good fundamentals, get lots of touches on the ball, attach joy to the game as the most important thing at such a young age. 
that's going to improve the landscape. That's going to create more fans. Eventually, it's going to create better culture. It's going to bleed into player development, all that stuff. That's the number one thing that that is on my list. It, maybe one other thing, and I, I don't know this, and I, I don't feel like I'm still quite educated on this topic, at least as much as I'd like to be. Maybe get rid of heading. Like this is a, obviously yeah, that's on my brain list. injuries and head problems are huge in the NFL. And that's kind of a scary thing as someone who doesn't actually have kids, but does quite enjoy football and, and you know, likes playing football casually and throwing the football around in the backyard, all that stuff. Like, I'd like to do that with my kids someday, maybe if, I, if I'm fortunate enough to have them. And but actually playing football in the NFL is is a little concerning. And soccer obviously is not the same risk, but does have legitimate brain risks on headers. And countries have started to take and I know Scotland's yeah. been sort of at the forefront of this started to take this into account and, and tweak little things along the way. But that's something that I think structurally to the game of soccer that could be worth considering and maybe tweaking going forward. Yeah, we've spoken about this before on the show, but the more I read about the effects of heading in soccer, the more the more I am concerned, and it feels like we are on already on the road, certainly in Scotland, to phasing heading out of the game within the next 15 years. And obviously, Sophie, my daughter, being a professional soccer player is a bit of an abstract concept right now at four years old, but if that were to happen, this is the sort of thing I would be concerned about. So, um, yeah, that is... Obviously, it would change a lot, of soccer and I, I don't have all the answers as to how it would change soccer but if we're talking about keeping people safe I think we have to have the discussion about heading because the numbers that I've seen in various studies are pretty bleak so I don't disagree with that at all Graham and I concur with you but it's a natural extension of that not to eliminate headers completely from the game because let's say if you as a human you don't develop fully until you're in your early 20s then you're having a good few years of heading the ball as a, a professional and, you know. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Taking it entirely out of soccer. I think we're already on that road. Because in Scotland, what Joe's kind of referencing is, I think up until the age of, is it 15 or 16? It's very, it's quite late. It's later than you would think. Um, heading doesn't happen in Scottish football, whether it's in training or in matches. So if you're a kid playing Scottish uh, football in Scotland, you, heading isn't a thing until you get closer to adulthood. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm talking about. In the next 15 years, just heading not being a part of soccer. And as I say, we would need to trial it. And I'm not entirely sure how things like set pieces would work. Um, it would change the sport a lot but if I'm projecting forwards to when Sophie will be uh, of an age where she can play for Scotland um, that is the sort of thing that I can envisage being um, fundamentally changed about the sport Wow, the cross the cross would die Graham, surely Yeah, yeah, and I'm not saying I would be terribly happy about it because I am a proper football man at heart and there, <laughs> there is nothing more uh, satisfying than a thumping header into the back of the net from a corner kick. So that would become a relic of a bygone age mm. that I would miss. But if, it, but if it helps keep people safe, particularly young people safe, then it'd probably be worth it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. But I also think um, if that would happen, then the entire National Football League would have to cease to exist also. Well, I'm not entirely sure how Sterling Albion play games because <laughs> like the ball's in the air for 75% of the time. <laughs> Fair enough. Graham, any other any things you would add uh, to your list as a father? Changes you uh, I hope by the time Sophie can play soccer, the handball rule has been sorted out because it's a mess at the moment and she likes to pick up the ball a lot when we're mm. playing in the garden and I'm concerned that the current law won't, uh, won't account for that. No. So we, we, we should ban hands in general, having them. Chop them off. Well, maybe, yep. maybe players by that time will have evolved into not having arms. I think that's the direction that we're, we're heading in. Ah, yeah. Or arms that cannot be in an unnatural position. Only natural position for arms from going forward. That would be good. <laughs> what, a, what a world we would live in. A utopia, Joe, that would be. Would it mm. not? 
Excellent stuff. Thank you very much, Jake, for that question. Thank you for everybody who submitted questions on this here episode. If you want to do so, totalsoccershow.com slash questions is where you submit them. Uh, but for now, Graham Rosman, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Joe Lowry, pleasure as always. Right back at you, Ryan. And listener, thank you the mostest for joining us on this journey. We're going to be back on the feed before you know it. But for now, bye. Bye. 